0: OCO, this is Candace Bird, your co host for this evening, along with my other co host, Angela. Kelly. Yes, this is Real Indigenous, and we're here to discuss, to discuss um, everything on your screen and everything in between. Today, we will be broaching a hard topic, a tragic topic. Uh, we will be talking about Keeper of the Ashes, the new documentary that is out on Hulu produced by Kristen Chenoweth. And uh, I just want to put a disclaimer out there, a trigger warning. What we're about to talk about is very difficult, very hard. There are families involved, families that are still grieving, that still have no closure to what happened to their family members. So I just want to encourage all listeners to take care of themselves, take breaks if they need, to reach out, if they feel that they need help. If
1: you need help, don't
0: hesitate to ask.
1: Thank you, Candace. Kristen Chenoweth grew up in Broken Arrow and was supposed to attend that camp that summer and became sick and her mom kept her at home. And so, as she says in the documentary, that story has haunted her her whole life, which is what inspired her to take part in this documentary. So what we're gonna talk about is the actual documentary. So it's a four part series and it takes an updated look on a case that happened in 1972, 76? When was that? (laughs)
2: 1977, it happened around 7 p.m. on Sunday, June
1: 12th, 1977. Thank you. There's been some recent evidence that it was tested through modern dna techniques which is why this documentary at this time just to go on record i love christian chenoweth love her love her on broadway so talented what a caring nurturing person she was artist in residence at ocu when i was there she is i mean honestly one of the most giving people bringing up the next generation of performers. So I was very surprised that she wanted to do this documentary. Me too. And it, to me, it felt like the documentary was maybe already in process when she heard about it. And then they just kind of inserted her on top of things, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Okay, so I have to say like,
0: I'm a musical theater nerd. I love Kristen Chenoweth. I love Chino. One of the things I love most about her is, is that caring generosity. I love that out of all the famous Oklahomans that we have, she comes and she builds a school, holds a camp, gives back to the community. With that all being said though, she talks about, and she's narrated as saying, this is a story that I wished I didn't have to tell. when she's when she brings that up herself, I start wondering why, why did Kristen Chenoweth choose to tell this story? Uh, I realized that she she didn't really know the girls and she talks about this in the documentary. She didn't really have she had passing she had passing relationships with Michelle Gousset, but you know that she didn't really know these girls and um her involvement in this i will say like that's some of the feedback i was looking at from the Cherokee community is okay so we have to be clear here about Oklahoma Native America about Indian territory people Cherokee people and locust grove do not appreciate broken arrow people coming in and telling them what's what There is a, we'll just say different worlds, very different worlds here, socioeconomically, racially. I'll just put all that in there. Like we're talking about a pretty the history of that area, Celine, it's an old district of the Cherokee Nation and Indian Territory um, that that encompasses Celine and that locust grove area. For a very long time, that's always been a pocket. For traditionalist Cherokee people and Cherokee families, and for the most part, you know they they live pretty humbly. It's nowadays it's a convenient drive to just hop on that that turnpike on that that interstate and just go to Tulsa sometimes. But you know that's that's for special occasions. But for the most part, that community has been isolated. Actually, even before statehood. It was one of the most peaceful districts within the Cherokee Nation because of its isolation. Sadly, though, tragically, what it's known for are two very violent, bloody happenings, actually. Uh, I won't go into the first one because the first one is not the topic of this podcast. But that area, sadly, is very tragically known for this this tragedy that what happened to uh, the Girl Scout murders. I'll say like due to the history of that area and the history of Broken Arrow and Tulsa area, Locust Grove people and those Cherokee communities, they just, I'll just, I'm just repeating myself now, but they don't like to be, they're just kind of worlds away. I'll just say that they're worlds away.
1: Well, in that camp for the Girl Scouts, it was built quite a while ago. I mean, It was, it had been there for a while, if if I understand that correctly.
0: Yeah. And the thing about that camp is, and so my fiance, Roy, he grew up in that area. And I'll say, I think he'd be okay with me sharing an observation he had, because he put it on Facebook, which is, it was kind of disconcerting to him, or it was strange to him. I could tell he seemed uncomfortable. He sees all this ominous music being played to the background of trails and trees and areas that he's very familiar with. He's familiar with trekking. And so to portray the land almost as the villain or something like that, like it, it was very ominous. It was very ominous. And I understand something very tragic happened there. And that is the focus of the documentary, but it isn't the whole story of the
1: area. It is actually a very peaceful place for the most part. Well, and you know, a lot of people assume that Oklahoma is flat, but maybe you could tell a little bit more about the topography there because it is rolling hills. Hmm. Yeah, Cave, sure. Caves, lots of trees. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. Sure. All right, so the
0: topography of, of this place of Locust Grove and, and Salina, that area. We are at the foothills of the Ozarks, so it's very, it's wooded, it's timbered, and it's full of hills, and there are natural springs. In fact, there are only two surviving courthouse buildings from the Indian Territory area of Cherokee Nation. There's one in Tahlequah, the Cherokee National Supreme Court, and the last and the only one is the appellate courthouse, the Saline District Courthouse? That is an original courthouse that was built in the 1870s after the Civil War, and it still stands. And if you were to go out there today, uh, ever since Cherokee Nation and Cherokee Nation businesses have taken stewardship of that property, there's beautiful springs, there's beautiful. It's a beautiful creek. You can see crawdads. It's just so beautiful out there. Like it's it's idyllic really and that's how a lot of people kind of I think experience the area is that that particular area that the, Sal- the saline courthouse of what I'm talking about is now it's made into kind of like it's like a park kind of like a park area uh, now the neighborhoods and the residence areas you know that's a little off-roading dirt roads, still hilly. Some families, Cherokee families still live on their original allotment lands throughout there, oftentimes in little family clusters. So that's to give you a little bit of an idea of what this area is like. There are cliffs, there it is wooded. it's
1: very it, it's ju- it's very woodland like. And- well somebody in the documentary said something about how you couldn't survive for as long as he had gone missing in Oklahoma, and I was like, but in that part of the state, you probably could. Well, depending if he,
0: as the, some of the police officers or some of the investigators were saying that he had to have been an expert woodsman. You know, I, I can't speak to that if he was or not. I would say that you, if you could hunt, yeah, you could probably survive a little bit out there. If you knew basic survival skills, how to make a tent, how to make a fire, how to find water, yeah, you could probably survive and you could probably hide. Yes, these hills out here on the eastern part of the state, we did have Oklahoma and Cherokee Nation had a history of um, being a good hiding place, especially the Cookson Hills for famous outlaws, Bell Star and people like that. All that was back, you know, back in the day. So it's very possible. It's very possible that Had he had just basic survival skills, you know, I think it would have been okay on getting by or he should have been, he would have been okay on getting by.
1: So to get back to the four part series, you know, the, I think the first episode kind of lays the groundwork on the girls and Kristen talks about having grown up there and, and it's not until we get into like episode two and episode three that they do address more of the racial tensions I guess you could say that were going on in that part of the world at that time because you know this is kind of on the and and they mentioned this in the show it's kind of on the heels of Alcatraz and the American Indian movement Red Power being growing yeah and so you know my dad worked for the BIA and had no use for the AIM members His family were, they were working on change from the inside. Um, And when I made the comment once that there was room for both, he just scoffed. (laughs) Mumble, mumble, mumble. So so I would imagine that in Oklahoma, in rural Oklahoma in the mid seventies, that the AIM movement hadn't quite made that indention into their lives. Oh, well,
0: there's kind of a mixture. Dennis Banks himself came to Tahlequah to recruit. Apparently, he went to a 49 down by the bridge. Oh, cool. <laughs> to recruit people. I don't know my late mentor, a uh, show carving mentor, Nagoti Scott, he considered himself, you know, an aimster and so I know there are a few. There there's a few here, pocket there. I don't know if Gene Roy Hart was associated with with aim. I kind of doubt it. But there were also, um, I would say you probably had, uh, AIM in this area had a fairly probably mixed reaction because Cherokees are different than Lakota. Uh, yes. They're, they're different. They're just different and we're different in our treaty histories and in our experiences and dealings with the United States of America. So. Right. Uh, our our history is is a bit different and especially when it comes to our boarding school history
1: so I won't get into that because I feel like I'm trailing off from the documentary but and I do want to mention that there is this is not the only documentary about the Girl Scout murders there was another one in the Tully do you remember when, when they made someone cry for the children
2: I think it was 1992.
0: Dang. I didn't know they made that into a document. I've
1: read the book. So when I was working for IHS in Ada, this, gosh, this would have been the late eighties. Somebody had a copy of the book, someone Fri- cry for the children. And I mean, we passed it around like fire. Everybody read it. Everybody was talking about it. The whole, you know, the whole conclusion of how he died of a heart attack was like seared into my brain because of purportedly somebody had done some medicine to reveal the true killer and that they would be dealt with eventually and then a few weeks or months later he drops dead that was my takeaway from the book being a very young person reading it you did you watch it recently tully
2: yes and what'd you think i kind of liked the older one better because it felt like it was more like it was more streamlined. It kind of tell you, told you what happened. It did kind of like, uh, in a way, it kind of felt like it It kind of focused on like the indigenous aspect of this story of what happened, whereas like this, the Christian Chenoweth one, it kind of referenced it, but it didn't really kind of really talk about the things that happened because, like with uh, with uh, Harvey Pratt, how he kind of like he was doing blessings and get and you know getting doing smoke and all this stuff to to kind of get him prepared for when he goes out to to find Jean Leroy Hart. And you might have to correct if this is correct or not, Candace, But how when he went out and stayed with the the medicine man who was helping him in the someone cried for the children. They they were saying like the medicine man's not going to, you know, judge who you are, or what you are because they're healers and they're just there to heal. They're not there to hurt or say like, yeah, he's a bad person or he's a good person and they're just there to help.
0: Yeah. I would say that's pretty much in line with what I know of our medicine people is that when you come to them for help, they're supposed to help. That that's kind of like their call. That's their calling is that, when that someone comes to you for help, like they'll help you. And uh, did they name they named the medicine man who helped him.
1: There was an article in the Edmund paper that our friend of the podcast sent us, our little researcher. and it went into more, way more detail, which brought up, you know, as a assimilated person who knows nothing about the five tribes, I, my question was how accurate is a lot of that information? Just because I don't know what the Cherokee belief system was before colonization. Was it? I mean, oh, okay.
0: well, you know, I was I was raised in in church in the Baptists in the Cherokee Baptist churches. So um, even I don't feel I can give you general. I cannot give you, the lived experience, though I respect it. I respect it very much, and I believe that it's a it's a beautiful way. So what I believe, or what I have observed from my fellow Cherokee people who follow the old way, uh, follow the old religion, is that you you want to live a good life. You um, you want to lift each other up. You want to hold each other close, and they talk about. And I like being stingy with one another. Like that's how close I'm going to hold you is I'm going to be stingy with you or that's how it's been explained to me. And uh, those are some of the things that they live by is that you live a good life, you forgive, you don't hold grudges and uh, and you love each other. You hold each
1: other up, you lift one another up. But there's obviously some practitioners of medicine yes yes there that, are but they but from what i'm gathering from what you two are talking about they're kind of they're just neutral in a situation they're there for a service
0: that's uh, that's my observation yeah that they're they're neutral people that they're that they are healers and that like they're they, they're there to help you if you have if you have a need if you have a problem and that yeah that i've never heard anyone of a remotest person you're like Passing judgment or, or anything like
1: that. So, yeah, I think that that's pretty much in line with what Tully was saying. So, I found that article. It was in the Edmund Life and Leisure, and it was written by David Ferris in 2016. And it talks about the the gentleman that wrote Someone Cry for the Children, that are Michael Wilkerson and Dick Wilkerson which I, I guess Michael was one of the investigators on the case. And he was also a co-worker of Harvey Pratt. And so they were discussing if medicine could be used for good or evil, at which point Pratt said, and this is a quote from the article, either one, but it's only supposed to be used for good. If the medicine man is helping the killer, he's probably doing it unknowingly. So Wilkerson then asked if there are consequences for using medicine for an evil purpose. Pratt says one of two things will happen. Either the medicine won't work or an ill fate will befall the person who uses the medicine, which is what came up in Someone Cry for the Children book.
0: Yes, I, I had been told that medicine is, you know, that there's now there is medicine that can harm, that there's medicine for healing. Like, you know, that anything can be used for a harmful purpose, really, but it's meant for a good purpose. But if you come to it with some kind of uh, a ill intention, like, say, to harm your neighbor or something, like, yeah, I've always been told, I was always taught that that comes back on you, that it, it, it comes back on you somehow. It's kind of, and I, I, I hate to compare it to karma because that's a, it's different, but it's also similar. I'm going to say it's kind of a similar belief where...
1: The energy you put out there is the energy you get back. Yes, yes. And so, yeah. So the, I think, and Tully, you'll have to speak on this. So the older documentary, did they interview the Wilkerson's
2: or did they, were the Wilkerson's like producers? I believe they interviewed one of them and he talked about how he brought his brother in to help with the investigation. And so that's why they were the quote unquote authority of writing the book. And I believe he was the lead detective, right? One of the lead OSBI agents. Is that correct? Or was that someone else?
1: Uh, It doesn't say. It just says that he is part Cherokee and he had his own medicine man named Crying Wolf. That's the medicine man that was identified in the article.
2: So Crying Wolf, they interviewed also. Okay. And that was an interesting one because I questioned, you know, like if that was quote, quote, his real name. And then, because they had him like in like silhouette, and they changed his voice, so he can be identified, right, right. And so I wonder, like, how exactly he 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 fit in the, in the story. I'm not saying he wasn't a real the real guy. I was just saying he was probably some other name that he goes by. And crying wolf was a pseudonym.
1: That would make sense. So none of those people were, were interviewed for this documentary, the people that they pulled in for this documentary were, there was only one set of parents mm-hmm. and the reporters that were on scene. And then this new younger sher- sheriff, or deputy. Yes. And he was from prior, right? And he is kind of taking it on upon himself to continue the investigation because spoiler alert I guess Uh, Hart was never convicted so it is technically an unsolved mystery Mm -hmm. and it's one of the most famous unsolved murder cases I think in the United States and I my cousin was actually at Girl Scout camp that summer when it happened and of course it was horrific and her mom my aunt tried to get her to come home and she wouldn't (laughs) We were all very concerned at the time, understandably. And in my most recent, my previous job, I was able to meet one of the defense attorneys for Jean Leroy Hart. Garvin Isaac is a OCU law alum and received an award for distinguished alum. And so I was working with him And he was telling me all about the book that he was writing about the Girl Scout murders, because it's like his life's passion to ensure that everyone gets a trial by jury because of all of the, let's just say he doesn't trust the police. He doesn't trust how they handle the evidence. And during, in this case is his most famous case of, you know, calling into doubt the evidence that was secured, and they do talk about that in this documentary about how the photos were in somebody else's desk previously. The was it the the flashlight came from an evidence room and suddenly was in the cliff. I think were the hidden? glasses.
2: Is it the like glasses? There. So in yeah. the uh, someone cry for the children. They said the janitor had seen the photograph. And so they thought that they planted it, but then they also showed that when they presented this photograph to evidence that it was signed off by Jean Leroy Hart. So there was like this mix of like a possibility that anything could have happened with that, but they still fucked up with that whole thing. And that's on them at the end of it all, you know, like you do stupid shit, you do stupid shit, which is what the DA did. Possibly the police did, you know? Yeah. Was- and
0: the DA wrote that book and it was a conflict of interest. And it was like, dang, like, what are you all
2: doing? Yeah.
1: Which is why Garvin was like on fire against them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I
2: was share- as being racist.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, I had a family member who remembers this time. Uh, he was a young man in college. And he says he remembers this case. And he said that he went to the courthouse where court was being held. And he said, there were so many people there. And he said that he could, um, he said he remembers Garvin Isaacs drawing on the board about, you know, and putting in, casting doubt on this evidence, this bit of evidence. And he remembers being convinced by Garvin Isaacs, you know, his arguments, you know, that the police chief had a vendetta against him because there was a rumor that Jean Leroy Hart had been dating his daughter, you know, and oh, that's terrible. Can't let that happen. You know, it's just, you know, and I don't know if that, you know, that's a rumor. I don't know if that was true or there any truth to that at all, you know, but, but Garvin Isaacs did his, he did his job. we will say that. Yes. Like, he a lot of doubt onto the evidence and then the DA certainly didn't not help his own case by writing trying to write a book about this
1: and i wish the the documentary had gone the new documentary had gone more into that i don't think that i mean if, if i'm remembering correctly they didn't spend a lot of time on the on the on the trial
2: not i don't think so i don't think they really did because like even like uh the cop the the police officer all that is kind of almost like a like you said, it's more rumored than anything. Because the other thing was that Gene Leroy escaped under his watch. Yeah, and so the guy was pissed off about that because it made him look oh, bad. Oh, right, 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 right. In defense of uh, district attorneys, the the guy who was who who was uh, trying to write the book and trying to make book deals actually he got he had he left and did not continue the trial. It was someone else, and I can't remember who the name was. Do we remember where they tried it? Was it city, county, state? I want to assume it was in county because it was near. It was the problem in at least in the someone cried for the children doc is that the parents were saying they were upset that it was a trial that was in the area where everyone knew the case. They felt like it should have been uh, tried outside the, the area.
1: Yeah, change of venue.
2: Yeah, change of venue. There you go. See, we got some law people on here. They know what to say. (laughs) I
1: worked in the law school for three years. So yeah, I'm technically a lawyer. No, not.
2: You're like my cousin Vinny. (laughs) That's
1: right. So I think that the newer documentary, I mean, it was very pretty. Yeah. The production Um, value is certainly higher than Someone Cry for the Children.
0: Yeah. I think it's very telling though in the documentary. Like Okay, so I think I am allowed to disclose this, I believe. So there were people within leadership of Cherokee Nation who were asking and trying to get people to go give these producers an interview. No one wanted to touch this. No one wanted to touch this because there's still a lot of hurt. There's still a lot of unhealing that's within our community uh, as well from this. So, you know, for better or worse, nobody... Nobody wanted to talk about this. I think it's telling that the documentary, like you can tell, right, that they couldn't find community members, Cherokee Nation community members, nobody from that community to come on to their documentary and do a question and answer. Because I will say, of course, a lot of our people and the people from that area, they don't, they don't, they don't like to be questioned by outsiders. You know, they just, they just don't, you know, and they don't want to open themselves up to, Uh, misspeaking or portraying their community or their families in a bad light or you know something like
1: that so i think it's very telling that this
0: doc was using archival footage from the community members
1: yeah they had one guy on there other than harvey pratt though but i want to say he was a maybe in a defense attorney as well Mm -hmm.
2: with the interview but i don't
1: think he's from the cherokee community Mm -hmm. i'm sorry what
2: was a pitchfork
1: Maybe.
2: It was a got interviewed Gary Pitchlin, defense attorney for Hart. Yes. He was chalked off.
1: Okay. That's your people.
2: Yep, yep. Yeah, you're
1: interviewed going going in on tape. Selling
2: snap. (laughs) (laughs) Spilling it (laughs) all. But yeah, I
0: think think it's pretty telling. Didn't you feel didn't you all feel that? Like. I, I wasn't felt, surprised.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, I felt like I said, I felt like there was more like like an indigenous native voice in the the Someone Cry for the Children one, where they kind of were more open about talking about the stuff because I guess it was in the 90s and it was more fresh than where it is now. And so and a lot of it, like the investigators, like you know, there was native investigators and also obviously a native uh, defense attorney. Because Hart went to the like the American Indian Law Center in Oklahoma City, I think, to get his attorney. Is that correct? It was something like that. I don't know. I'm not sure how Isaacs ended up
1: with the case. Yeah.
2: So from what I rem- vaguely remember about the documentary, the older documentary, is that he went to like a Native law center who, who worked with Native people. And people were questioning, why did you do that? Because you're, you're a big name now. We well, could have gotten any attorney to help you out. And I can't remember what they said his answer was, or if they even said his answer was, but he wanted to choose the Native people because I, I'm sure it reflects, like like you guys said, about how in that era, it was a Native focus and the previous you know uh, prosecutor was kind of cheating and there was this racism involved or cops doing racist shit and this attorney's doing racist shit.
1: Well, and, and to be clear, Hart was not a stand-up citizen by any stretch of the imagination he was already a convicted rapist he was in jail when he for for that I think when he escaped and then he was later picked up again for assault Mm -hmm. and was in prison when he died which So I'm just doing a quick search. The New York Times actually archived their article from June 5th, 1979, announcing his death. Prisoner acquitted in sex slaying dies. Jean Leroy Hart acquitted in March of the sex slaying of three Girl Scouts died tonight while exercising in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary Yard here, a prison official said. Mr. Hart, 35 years old, Collapsed after lifting weights and jogging, said Nancy Nunley of the State Corrections Department. She said he was taken to the prison infirmary and then to a local hospital. Doctors attempted to revive Mr. Hart for about 20 minutes before pronouncing him dead of a massive heart attack. She said that Hart was athletic and did not have a history of heart trouble. An autopsy is scheduled for tomorrow. Mr. Hart was serving sentences totaling 305 years for rape, kidnapping, and burglary convictions in Oklahoma. But late last March, a jury in Pryor found him not guilty of still another crime. So then it goes on to talk about the trial.
2: Okay, so the trial happened in Pryor, Oklahoma, then? Yes. Which was nearby. I don't know if it was on this dock or the other dock where they said they even with his death, people wondered if that was foul play because, like you said, he was a healthy person he no one said like how could this guy who was in good health uh die from a heart attack so easily or was there something else that happened and um and the other thing too is like they did talk about how like he was like a physically physically fit guy and how he like he he was you know former football player who still maintained the his you know his physique i guess you call it mm-hmm.
0: right and i have to say like in it- In our community, in my community, what I was told, because I wasn't told about his convictions. What I was told is that he was a hero. He was the handsome football player, that he was like the homecoming king, very beloved. And so I didn't know about his convictions until I read Cry for the Children.
1: Oh, really? Interesting.
0: Yeah, that's... Yeah, when, when did you read the book? I read the book. It was a long time ago. I was probably in college, uh-huh. maybe high school, but it was a it was a long time ago. I haven't haven't read it since, but I remember it was you know a harrowing harrowing book.
2: For as long as I can remember, this has been something talked about, like in my community and my family. When uh, when my friend Nathan Hart, you guys probably know him. He's an artist. He uh, came and visited uh, with my family. And first thing they ask, is, are you related to Jean Leroy Hart? (laughs) Is it, is it? No, I'm not. I'm Cheyenne's. (laughs) 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 And so then everybody starts talking about it. You know, that kind of thing happens where like, for whatever reason they start talking, it's something that gets talked about every once in a while, maybe like new evidence shows up or something, you know, pops up in the news every once in a while and and it becomes talked about. And so i You know, I think in one of the docs, they did talk about, like, how people thought of him heroically at that time period where they were, like, raising money to pay for his defense fund. And, like, one of the parents was talking about, like, how people would come up to them and say, you know, Jean Leroy Hart didn't kill your kid. Or they would say, or she would go to the restaurant to get, you know, eat, and there's a tip jar to raise money for the Jean Leroy Hart defense fund. And it was just really hurtful for them to to see all of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, it's such a small community, and to be having to deal with all of that would be, you know. And I'm I'm sure ABC and CBS and NBC were all camped out there for a while, and to be thrust in the media spotlight like that would be.
0: And from what I understand. on top of trauma. And from what I understand too um i do think that hart's family is still alive now i don't know them i don't know where they are i don't know where they live but from what i understand this is you know this is it's very touchy very touchy still and it still is
2: well i mean if we consider law as the final voice of this particular case and that's your family you're saying well by law they said that he did not do it so why would you guys keep bothering me about it and maybe they're just keeping a low profile right i mean like it's 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 a hard thing to deal with when it's your family yeah so i think that anybody
1: interested in this documentary should definitely watch the other documentary it's on youtube
2: so you can watch it So in that one, we had Johnny Cash doing the narration. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. You don't like Johnny Cash?
0: No, I I like Johnny Cash. I just also know he said he was Cherokee and he's not. But I I do like Johnny Cash and his music. But overall, with the documentary presented the way that it is, a lot of people, what they said is they didn't feel like anything new had been presented and they didn't. Mm -hmm they were not convinced um, by the policeman's reconstruction of the scene but you have to also let's also understand that this this policeman his jurisdiction's prior isn't it yes well there still aren't that very many locust grove people that will that, that will be convinced by a cop from prior because there's also as much as there is a difference As worlds away from Broken Arrow is from Locust Grove, Pryor's also different than Locust Grove. Right. Pryor's kind of known a little bit more for its cowboys, and Locust Grove has a little bit more mixture of cowboys and natives. Uh, That's the general feedback that I was kind of looking at, is that people were in general not convinced. They said nothing new had been proven, nothing new had been brought to light. And that Kristen Chenoweth's inclusion of um, "For Good" at the end, and even I felt this. I thought it was highly inappropriate. And I love that song, but I
1: know. But oh my gosh! Song, but,
0: and I thought, oh my gosh, it's kind of breaking my heart and sickening me just a little bit to listen it to this song while, oh, on this documentary. It was
1: so cringy.
0: Yes, it wasn't terribly cringy
1: i mean maybe they shot it during lockdown i don't know but you know she could have done a performance for victims support or as a fundraiser or you know something like that instead that's what i meant at the beginning when it feels like they shot this whole thing and then they just kind of plopped her in you know like she was here for two days and they shot all of this footage of her walking on the trails and performing like she was here for the camp. So we're going to get some footage of her doing this song with one of her campers and walking around and looking at the tree and everything. And then, you know, she gets her part done and she's out of there.
2: Yeah. It's that, you know, the, the rule of like, if we took this character out of the movie, would the movie still work? And so basically if you took Kristen Chenoweth out, you would still have the story and and like you, like you said, you know, it could have easily created a storyline for her because, you know, she could have had, you know, talked more about her survival remorse and how may how she reaches out to the family to say, how, how, what can I, what could I do as Kristen Chinua to to help out, to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because like, you know, like Richard Gousset, when his kid died, he 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 went to the state legislator to pass the Oklahoma Victims Bill of Rights and uh, founded the Oklahoma Crime Victim Compensation Board. And then Sherry Farmer founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, Mm. which which is like a support group for for families who have lost people in murder. And, And when I did some research on that, I saw that there's no longer an Oklahoma chapter. So one thing she could have done was reopen that chapter and probably raise funds for that. Or even so like with the dna testing of the recent one of uh i think it was like a 2017 when they did a dna test the sheriff's office had to raise thirty thousand dollars in donations to do that dna test and so you know she could create a fund to do these kind of testings for unsolved mystery murders you know
1: oh yeah yeah these would would be like
2: a beautiful storyline for this character or however we want to phrase it when it's documentary for this person.
1: (laughs) And I think, I mean, the DNA, of course, all the headlines touted it as having finally solved the mystery. But I think even in the documentary, they say it's inconclusive because of the how old it was and how little there was, but there was a weak tie into heart.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't know
1: how they would have gotten his DNA to compare it. Well,
0: like that's I wanted to ask you all that. As far as a documentary plot line is concerned, like by the time we get to the, this last episode, we've we've talked about the murders, we talked about each girl, we've talked about what happened in those first two episodes, and then we get to the murder trial and the acquittal and the death of Jean LeRoy Hart. Um, so what I'm curious in this last episode is where it feels like just as a documentary, documentary wise, plotline wise, it feels like it fizzles because it's repeating itself. And we've got this cop who claims to have new DNA evidence and it's supposed to be bombshell. Like this is supposed to be the climactic final thing. We're finally going to have closure to this thing. And for some reason it just doesn't land and that's what I read in an interview online and I can't remember which article at the moment, I don't know if it was Vox or if it was it was one of those large publications that talked about, well, basically how kind of inappropriate Kristen Chenoweth was being in the documentary.
2: And it talks was that about, article where it said, there was a murder that happened in Oklahoma and Kristen Chenoweth made it all about herself or something yes. like that? Yes, yes.
0: she managed to center it. She managed to center herself in this tragedy. So yeah and it is it's like yikes uh yeah so for some reason at the end it just doesn't quite have that bombshell relevant, you know revelation kind of moment and i don't and i wondered from a you know filmmaker standpoint like why how did it so how did we come to that
2: well um the sheriff's name is Mike Reed and he's the sheriff of Mays County is, mm-hmm. is so is Locust Grove a part of Mays County I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so so and so you know I guess he's the one who raised the donations and all that to get that DNA testing. And he where's said there, he had he had known world? it okay. since he had known he had had the DNA test since 2019 but did not go public with the findings until asked to do so by the victims families. And so, yeah, so the DNA, they did take DNA way back then. And I want to say they even took sperm sample from Gene LeRoy Hart to see if it matched. So the thing that I don't think they talked about in the show was that he had a vasectomy. And so there was sperm in one of the girls. And according to the other, the older documentary is what it said. And so there was sperm found in the girl. So he said, one of the th- proof that they said, is that, well, he can't have a vasectomy or he couldn't have sperm because he had a vasectomy. And so then we find out that after he died, they found that the, that the this vasectomy did not was, there was not like a, let me see It wasn't it successful. Wasn't, yeah. The vasectomy was not successful. So that evidence could have been from him. Yeah. And they had the hair sample, so that can they get DNA from hair now? Is that correct? It's from the follicles. And uh, I, I, I'm sure they had blood samples, maybe. Because when did you know? I, when did they start collecting DNA? Oh,
1: I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head. So there, so there's a Newsweek article that refers to a, a Ranker article that talks about this the newest DNA uh, DNA testing conducted in 2022 strongly pointed to Jean Leroy Hart. Although there's no full DNA profile to conclusively say that he was the killer, the new testing did rule out several potential suspects that had been considered over the years. The DNA samples were originally test- tested in 1989, but were inconclusive. They were tested again in 2008, but the samples were considered too degraded based on the technology available at the time. Police in Oklahoma, as well as Lori Farmer's mother, are confident that Hart was the guilty party. Farmer added that the new DNA evidence gives us some peace, but no closure.
2: In some of the readings that I saw, and also in Someone cried for the Children, they talked about the 1989 DNA testing they did. And, you know, whatever this means, or if, like, I have no idea, but they said that three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA. And statistically, the DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. This eliminates point eight percent of Native American Indians I suspect. So that makes it that the likelihood that Hart did it because only 12 in 100,000 Native Americans had that DNA code that he had. And so then in 08, they did another one, which was inconclusive because it was too deteriorated to obtain a DNA profile. And then that 2017 one, where they raised the $30,000 for and I guess that's the one that they showed on the on this doc, right? Oh, okay. And so authorities made public that DNA evidence strongly suggests Hart's involvement, and so you know that's kind of where they are. So there's no like like you said, you know, it's not conclusive, and it will most likely never be.
1: And at this point, everybody's you know we're we're all getting older, and investigators are passing on. And did the documentary add to? The collective knowledge of the case I don't think so I mean no. it, it had some new interviews like the interviews of the newspaperman which I found interesting
2: oh yeah yeah I did like his his character I, or whatever we call him in documentaries but his I did like that person's story yeah I felt that when I got emotional about him and I got yeah. emotional of the of, of the, the the mom uh Milner's mom Oh, Doris oh, she's, yeah, she's,
0: yeah. Doris Milner's. Oh yeah. Doris Milner's mom. Like, oh gosh.
2: That I mean, was really hard. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. And I guess also, I don't know if it said it on, on, on the Kristen Chenoweth one or the older one, but like they did not tell the parents that their kids were dead until they all the children. Them. Yeah. And they, so like one of the parents said that there was like people outside his door wanting a photograph of, of their, of his daughter, and he's, he didn't know what for, so he just he said, he said it's for an article. And so he gave him, like, you know, the, the, uh, the photograph he didn't want to lose. He says, okay, take it. And then, like, that evening, he's watching TV, and that's when he finds out that his, his daughter's dead. It was, it was just a different time. True that.
1: Small communities, probably not a police force used to anything like that.
2: Oh, the other thing they didn't mention was there was a letter that was sent before the, the actual camp where one of the uh, Girl Scouts leaders got a letter said that, oh, what did it say? But it said something about like, we're going to kill three children, I think. And that really
1: happened or is that urban myth?
2: That may be urban myth. I did not, because that's in that myth? book, right?
1: Well, I don't know, but at this point, it's kind of hard sometimes to to separate the truth from the myth. One of the things that, of course, you guys know how I feel about the mystic Indian trope. And so talking about, The dogs that were the scent dogs Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that were trying, you know, that would drop dead or they'd lose the scent in the middle of the field because he's changed into a bird and, you know. Changed into a deer, what have you. You you know, good old me. I'm like, yeah, they probably just ran out of the scent. I don't know.
2: So, yeah. So, uh, according to when I just happened to open this up, it says it's on ranker.com or something and also on Wikipedia. So y'all can look deeper and see if that was true or not. I think it's in one. It's in that book in the uh, the tent eight book or tent number eight book. I don't know if anyone's read that one. Which but book is that? Tent number eight. It. It, it's more of a newer book about the the murders. Oh. There's about there's a few books out there about it. So in this one, it's a, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one, and ah. they thought it was a prank and it was discarded. But and they also said it was like a talking about aliens and shit like that. So they thought it was just people fucking with them. Oh yeah. But I guess the letter was discarded. So we don't have evidential proof seeing that letter. Like you said, it's probably more just hearsay. So we can't really say yeah or nay. Yeah. And so for me, like I kind of, like I told you, I, I kind of like growing up that the story I heard was about that kind of shit where in the, in that, documentary I watched. It said that the sheriff of Mays County was sick and tired of being told that he had planted these evidence and was lying and all this stuff. So he reached out to Crying Wolf because he wanted to find out once and for all who killed his kids. So he went to that dude that's called Crying Wolf and asked if there was a quote unquote Indian way to determine who was to blame. So According to the stories I heard growing up and the and, and what was also said in this documentary was that they spoke to a powerful medicine person and in the documentary goes into some details but basically it said that late one night at the courthouse during the time of the trial they placed four equal portions of tobacco on each corner of the courthouse and Crying Wolf said that he prayed for the ultimate truth. And to him, he was meaning the ultimate truth was life and death. And he said, this would be the test of the ancients to determine if Gene Hart or another person would die as a result of this murder. So basically saying, whoever killed these kids will die soon. And so for me, I always thought that that's how it happened, how it really happened because I do know magical Indians, so I, so I can't say, like, yeah, we're all magical, don't you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you and
2: definitely so, are, Tully. <laughs> so I have known people who have practiced medicine in, in, in the traditional yeah. kind of way. I can't say that that did not happen. I remember this person who wrote a, a play wrote a story where this person, out of nowhere, turns into a, a bear. And I was telling her, I said, this person just becomes a bear out of nowhere. It's just like, it's not, there's no lead up to it. Nothing. He just all of a sudden becomes a bear. And she's like, well, that's how it really happens. This is what people do. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, in all, a lot of cultures, you know, there is the shape shifter. So yes. it comes from something, right?
0: Well, we absolutely, yes, we have shape shifters. Same thing with Cherokee medicine. Like there are and again, this is not something I have firsthand experience about. This is something I grew up with. So it's something that I was taught to have a, a respect for. And I was always taught, if you don't know what you're doing, don't mess with it. Don't do it. So uh, the general kind of sense I got from what happened with, with this case was that it's possible he was messing around with things that he wasn't supposed to and that it came back on him. That is one story in the community. You know, that if he, you know, if he did it, then this is, this is what you get. You know, if he was using medicine in a wrong way or a bad way, that this is what happens. Not much else I can say really about that. This documentary is uncomfortable. This documentary is tragic the deaths of Lori Farmer and Doris Milner and Michelle Gousset, like they were obviously precious, obviously beloved. And it is, it is, it is tragic that it feels like what happened to these girls gets overshadowed by this mythical Indian that. Uh, that seems to be, you know, he's, he's the boogeyman and it, it's, it's odd and it's scary and it's very strange to me, you know, thinking about it. I will say, I don't think this documentary helps either communities. I mean, I don't want to speak for any of the families. I do not want to do that. If this documentary was meant to bring closure meant to bring peace. I think it failed. What about you, Tony? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you, Candace is like it, I guess it's there for a newer crowd who may not know the story I don't know who those people are but I'm sure they are out there and like if you're a Christian Chenoweth fan I don't think this would <laughs> enhance your fandom as multiple as another thing to watch with Kristen Chenoweth. In it. I do think it brought some new information that I didn't know but I'm sure it's somewhere archived elsewhere because there's so much out there already from news footage to previous documentaries and things like that. And that's what I was telling Angela is like, you know, you could have actually made a full movie with just the archival footage and, and stuff and just like limited interviews. And I, I wondered why what happened with the Goussey parents because they're not in that. Do you know anything of what happened with them? I have no idea. Yeah. I assume that they may be, they have passed on so that, you know, there's no interviews with them, but there is, old interviews with them that could be could have been used in this movie. And so we could hear all three of the parents' storylines. Cause like you said, everyone's suffered a tragedy, and that's a real thing. And that's the thing that's felt. That's the thing you you really care about because it's kids. And that's probably what keeps it alive so long is the kid ele- element too, as well as the this mythical aspect of it. And but I think that it misses things. Like you said, the healing part. Yeah. The healing part could be about. Trying to create something so that this doesn't happen to kids again, or, or even raising funds so that we can get DNA samples of crimes that we could probably find the proof that this was the murderer. You know, something like that could have happened. With, I mean, you know, Kristen Chenoweth, I'm assuming has some cash. Even if she put in like, you know, her her noblesse oblige into it to say, here's what I'm doing for this, that would have helped. You know, help make it more at least more like it has purpose, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I think they could have gone way past just four episodes with rebuilding instead of going over the stuff that's been rehashed. Because, you know, even just us talking about it, I realized we don't know anything about the trial. And just doing a quick search online, there's not a lot of information about the trial online right now. It's hard for people to interview Mr. Isaacs right now. Just because of his health, but he has—I'm sure he has all of the case files and
2: could go through and. I mean, you got the court document.
1: That. Yeah, the.
2: You could reenact transcript. the court document. You yeah, got the transcripts.
0: Yeah, and I think if Harvey Pratt was up to it, uh, I do believe there's no doubt in his mind. You know that he caught the person the first time that it was
2: Gene Leroy Hart. Our buddy Tyler over at Scotden Cinema. He said that he didn't meet Harvey Pratt back at Red Earth and kind of got some stories from him. And he said that he has Harvey Pratt's phone number if you guys ever want (laughs) to get him on to talk about it. Oh, my gosh. uh, He said that uh, he's nervous to talk about much anymore because there's a lot of people involved that's still alive, including uh, the the ones who who hit him out. And so, you know, he's kind of like now at the point where he's kind of like not into talking about it much more anymore. We just, because we want to be careful what we say and how we talk about this, because there are a lot of people still alive from both sides of these, of this story, you know, Absolutely. and we don't want to disrespect anyone.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's a tragic situation with a tragic conclusion mm-hmm. because there's not really one. So yeah, maybe some, maybe a little bit more time will pass and somebody will do a more exhaustive look at the whole case through archival footage and that kind of that'd be a big research project project that's like a russell Cobb version like level research project
2: well you know there's that website that's very exhaustive i don't know if you ever guys got went to it it's called the girl scout it's called girl scout murders.com oh. it has a big list of all kinds of things like a timeline things that are unexplained victims suspects people evidence aftermath like oh. it, it, it tries to gather as much as archives that there is and i don't know who put this together or what it is but it's someone who it's kind of like looks like a wow, something like a 90s yeah <laughs> but it but i've looked through a little bit i haven't looked through it completely but it does have a lot of like information to dig into
1: oh yeah there's the preliminary hearing transcript associated court documents the Tulsa World six part series of articles.
2: So someone is archiving them. So that's wow, good, good
1: for them. Oh, that's where you got the book, tent number eight. Okay.
2: Yeah. Like Lloyd McCoy. Someone cry for the children is still like a over a hundred bucks. So if you still have your copy, keep it. I know. Or or you know, put it on eBay. <laughs> Arch you need bread, sell it. Yeah, gas, sell it. At this point, you think they'd republish it. Maybe the rights are to somebody else or something.
0: I know. Yeah. Cause it's out of print and yeah. shoot the copy that I have, I borrowed from my dad and it's falling apart. It's broken in half. The spine is broken.
1: There's a, you know, there are book binders that will fix that for you if you want. If I can find it, I, I'm, I don't know where he put
0: it cause I know it got passed around the family.
2: Mm-hmm. As right. the, Yeah. that That's the thing that happened with us too. Cause I think my dad had a copy of it, and everyone mm-hmm. was like reading it. And yeah, we, we I don't know it. where it's at now. It's probably like in his pile of stuff that he he has in his in his in the shed outside. Your I sister go, probably knows where it is. Probably get get that hundred dollar hundred dollar uh, paycheck when I, when I find it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read it. I want to borrow it and read it before you she sells it. <laughs> All right. And uh, Tyler said he has a copy of it, so. I might have to bum it off him. If he lends it out, I don't know. I know like at the library here, it's a book that you have to read while you're in the library. What do you call those? Oh, oh. a non-circulating. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I know that if you go to Garden Ridge with, or is it Garden Ridge? Garden, some gardeners, the bookstore in Tulsa, it's on Garnet. Mm-hmm. They've got a copy of Someone Cry for the Children's on their display case. And it's like, you know, a hundred bucks over a hundred bucks, something like that. And, it's weird to me, you know, <laughs> this book, this whole beat up book, and I'm like, oh wow, I didn't realize, I didn't realize that people put a value on it that much.
2: Well, it was a popular case at that time. This was at, for the longest time the only book about the stuff told by the the uh, investigators, and so people considered it basically the Bible, right, of that.
1: Yeah, it's at least you know, what is that called when you're that close to it single source not single source primary source primary source thank you
2: so how about you angela what were your th- final thoughts
1: yeah pretty much the same this documentary if if you're looking for a quick intro into it it's probably fine it's very pretty mm-hmm. but I don't but it was just really surface level I think the add-on of Christian Tinaeth was puzzling to me or maybe yeah, and also the producer didn't hit maybe the producer didn't pitch it to her in a way that we've discussed you know with victims rights and that kind of thing mm-hmm.
2: well that's the thing too is like you know like you know how she talked about how it connected to her because you know she was about to go but she got sick it's kind of like every like when i talk to people about it who are alive during that time they talk about it deeper than she did yeah and, they weren't even connected that much. I mean, like she, even when she talked about the Goussé saying, like, "Well, my brother was a student of her class," and I remember I saw her in the in the hallway. I the never hall, talked to her, but I seen her,
1: right? But
2: when somebody in the in in Broken Arrow, which is basically a small town, when somebody dies like that in your class, that touches you. That changes you sometimes. Like when even like in my school, when this kid who went off to college, I was a freshman, he went he was. he went off to college, you know, his first year of college. First day he takes off, he he has a car wreck and he dies. And that whole fucking school is somber that next day, or even for that whole week, and everybody's all balling and shit. Cause you're you know, you're connected to those fuckers. I mean, maybe BA is a bigger than I think it is, but but still, if you see this person in the hallway, you know, people are talking about that, they're feeling that and so you know, express that emotion and, and talk about that emotion and, and, and feel that because even like when I, uh, when I talked to other people, they said, yeah, ever since that happened, I would never send, I decided never to take my, send my kids off the camp because I didn't want their asses to die. And then like, and then I was thinking about my own camp experiences. Like, I wonder if like, what happened was they start having camp counselor, cabin, cabin counselors. So there was always an adult in each cabin and I was like, I wonder if that's because of the Girl Scout murders. That I mean, probably, happened. yeah. <laughs> but then, I you know, with an adult with course. a bunch of kids, might be a different set of issues. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing, too, is like, in being out in these woods and camps, they're kind of scary anyway. And, and like the worst thing that happened with us was like some drunk dude showed up and they those kids had like he's trying to get through the window and they had to like hit him with these sticks. But <laughs> oh my
1: god, where was that?
2: <laughs> what camp
1: was that?
2: <laughs> it was that our church camp? Church camp. Oh. <laughs> <I'll>
1: take...
2: <laughs> yeah, they had to run him off. I mean, he's just some drunk dude trying to pass out somewhere and I think he's trying to get in and lay down. They were like, "Get the fuck out of here, you crazy fucking drunk." <laughs> that didn't that never Good happened at state. Catholic church camp. <laughs> in in her story, like, yeah, emote for us i mean tell us it, it it feels like it feels like a hollywood person coming in and just trying to be connected with something without connecting you know what i mean
0: yeah it just misses the mark
1: and i love krista
2: i do I too Kristen. i think she's badass
1: and and mazel on her engagement i hope she's very happy all right so yeah that's my final so who's gonna close this out so all right i'd like to close this out go for it Well, we talked about a lot of
0: disturbing of the disturbing topics that the documentary brings up. And as we draw our talk about our final thoughts and final feelings about the documentary, I just want to say that I want to repeat that we hope you take you took care of yourselves, and that you will continue to take care of yourselves while you're listening to this podcast. Our goal in producing this podcast is primarily to entertain, to talk about things that pertain to indigenous people, on the screen and on film, and this is a topic that is, um, is very hard, still very hard, still very touchy for all communities, all families involved. And uh, I just want to give out some information for the foundation that Lori Farmer's parents started. This is uh, for the parents of murdered children. If you want more information, please go to pomc.org pomc.org, And that is their website information. If you're interested in their phone number, it is 513-721-5683. Thank you for joining us today for this difficult topic, for this, or for this documentary that broaches a difficult topic. Thanks for staying with us. I want to say, I want